but it's, it's been really striking to me. I've been reading and writing in Deuteronomy recently, and you know, we're New Testament Christians. We live under the gospel. We understand that the law of Moses was mainly given for the children of Israel. It doesn't apply directly to us because of the covenant that we have in Christ. Those requirements are taken away from us, and we live under a different covenant. And, and so sometimes it becomes very easy for us to just neglect the Old Testament and think there's really not all that much valuable for us there. And in fact, some of the Bibles that I have from years past, um, I go through them I don't because I use them. <laughs> but in a lot of my Bibles, the, the New Testament section gets frayed and worn, and then the Old Testament section just still looks brand new. And that, that really reflects a, a flaw, I think, in my method of study, because there is value in the Old Testament. In one place, God says, I am the Lord. I do not change. Uh, Jesus, we, we read about him, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Things about who God is and, and how he relates to man and what he expects of man and how he treats his people, those things are very similar, Old and New Testament. And when the Lord talks about what he does and what he's thinking and what his plans are for man, those things don't really change and so there's value in those things. In the first several chapters of Deuteronomy, we see Deuteronomy as a book of the law, and, and then you get, you get in the latter half of it, and there is a lot of you shall do this and you shall not do that. But almost the first half of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is exhorting the people over and over in every way that he can think of to remember God, don't forget God, keep his commandments, trust him because God is good to you, he has been good to you, he will be good to you, and if you forsake him, it's terrifying. And so over and over in different ways, that exhortation is given virtually in each chapter through about chapter 15. And then he starts getting into the, the specifics of the law. But here in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, when he talks about remembering the commandments of God, there's a phrase that he uses. Uh, that really set my mind working anyway. And let's just look at it again. Verse 1, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. When Marion was reading uh, those same verses, when he read verse 5 in the translation he was reading from, it said, as a man chastens his son, the Lord your God chastens you. In this particular case, I, I like the word discipline better just because of the ideas that it brings up in our mind. Generally, when we think of chastening, don't we think of punishing? And, and for that matter, when we talk about discipline, I think generally we think about the negative things. If I stand up and say, I want to talk about you to you about discipline, you think, oh no. <laughs> you know, because discipline is just never pleasant. And Hebrews actually says that, right? No, no one enjoys being disciplined at the time that they're being disciplined. 
But the thing that strikes me in, in these verses is as I look at what Moses says in those uh, six verses, it's not all negative as he talks about what the discipline of God is. There are several ways well beyond mere punishment that God disciplines and trains and chastens his people. And then it strikes me in verse 5 that he says, as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. And so in Ephesians, when it says, fathers, do not provoke your children, but bring them up in the discipline and the admonition of the Lord or the training and admonition of the Lord. If God says his discipline is the kind of discipline a father should give a son, then maybe there's also some suggestions here as to how we apply discipline when we think about being parents. And so maybe you begin to see my dilemma. I could talk about how God disciplines us. I could talk about how we're supposed to uh, add discipline as parents to our children. We could talk about, on the basis of these verses, discipline in the church, and are there principles that God teaches in the way he disciplines to tell us something about how we discipline one another because we're given that responsibility. I can't talk about all of those things in, in one lesson, so I think I'll talk about two of them. First, I just want to look at how God disciplines us and think about how that applies, and, and then just maybe briefly at, at the end of each of them, ask, is there a way maybe this applies to how we treat our children as parents and how we discipline them? Uh, if all we ever do is whip them and punish them and rebuke them, that's not really discipline. That's part of discipline, but that's not all of it. So four things that I see in these verses and, and maybe in one other place in Deuteronomy about the way God disciplines that maybe we can learn something from. First, as he talks about the discipline that God applies he talks about the uncertainty that they had when he says in verse 2, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Do you remember how God led them the whole way in the wilderness? There was that pillar of cloud by day that was before them and the pillar of cloud by night. And when that thing moved, they moved. And when it stopped, they stopped. And sometimes it would move every day and then stop at night and then the next day it would start moving again. And sometimes as you read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, sometimes it would move for a while then it would stop in a place and it would stay there. And it doesn't seem like each time they stopped, the Lord said, okay, we're stopping here for a while, and we'll be here for 13 days or 30 days, and we're going to rest and recover, and i got some things to do here. And then we'll, there's never any of that. It's just when it moves, you move. And when it stops, you stop. And there's no explanation. There's no understanding. And really, there's no knowledge of exactly where they're going during those 40 years of wandering. And as we try to map it, it really kind of looks like they go around in circles for about 40 years and maybe after a while, some of them worked it out. Hey, we're just going around in circles. And yet they just got to trust. and they've got, They don't know exactly where. They don't know what's going on, what the purpose is. Why are we stopping here? Why are we moving here? And that's not something that's limited just to the way God dealt with Israel in, in the Exodus. In Hebrews chapter 11, when it talks about the way God dealt with the father of Israel, Abraham, it says in Hebrews chapter 11, Verse 
Hebrews 11, verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out, when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And, and so you think about that picture in, in Genesis chapter 12 where Abraham is living and, and he's happy and he's got his life and his family's all around him and God speaks to him and says, get out of your family and away from your family and away from your homeland and go to a land that I'm going to show you. And there's no answers to the questions that we usually ask. How long am I going to be gone? Am I ever going to come back here? Where exactly is this land that you're going to show me? Do I need to take anything with me? What about this? What about that? There's none of that. God says to Abraham, let's go, and away he goes. And the Hebrew writer says very specifically that he went out not knowing where he was going. There's, there's discipline there. God's teaching trust there. He's teaching an acknowledgment of his authority there. If the Lord says, let's go, does it matter where he wants us to go? And, and we sing a song that way sometimes, don't we? Where he leads, I'll follow. We say, wherever it leads. And that, that uncertainty, there's a level of that for us, even in the New Testament. In Galatians chapter 6, just for a single example. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. The Apostle Paul writes, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so if you live your life as a Christian, and you take to heart those principles that are taught, the principles of thinking of others always as better than yourselves, the principle of uh, giving up a materialistic focus and taking on a spiritual focus, thinking about supplying other people's needs rather than, than, than having your own needs supplied, being kind, being patient, being gentle, as you have opportunity doing good to everyone in every way that you can. Is there anybody sitting here who has tried that, who at some point has thought, but what about me? And is this really worth it? And how come everybody else seems to get all the advantage of me doing good and I never get any benefit of it? Am I just confessing my own sin by, by admitting that I feel that way sometimes? Or, or do we go through that kind of thing? When you do good for other people and they don't appreciate it, or you don't see an immediate benefit from that, or you don't understand why anymore I'm doing this, or I don't really feel like it's going to bring me any good in my life. What Paul says here is the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. He's not saying it's all going to work out great here and now, that you're going to be prosperous and healthy and happy and everything's just going to be wonderful for you here and now. But he says if you do that, you're going to reap eternal life. What's the problem with that? Well, we don't see it immediately. And even as we contemplate it and we try to talk about it, there's been lots of times where I want to preach sermons 
about heaven. And then I start studying it, and I realize, although the Bible says some things about heaven, there's not a lot of particulars about what it's going to be like. There's a lot of allegorical ideas. There's a lot of metaphors for what heaven is like. Really, the only thing that we know about heaven is the Lord is there, and we'll be happy there. And so then as God describes going to heaven to us and saying, your reward is you'll be with me in heaven. And then we start asking, well, what exactly am I going to do in heaven? And what exactly does heaven look like? And, and what, what really is there? And are you sure I'm going to be happy? And what we're really saying is, I don't really trust you. And, and we want some more details. And so maybe God disciplines us by giving us this promise and this hope that we can't see. And he says, trust me, if you follow me and you do what I say, you're going to like it. That's really the same sort of promise that Israel is operating under, even though they're getting ready to receive a physical blessing. So far, none of them of this generation has ever seen the promised land, except for those 12 spies that went in. But they've heard about it, and they've been told, this is a good land. This is a land flowing with milk and honey. When you go into this land, if you're faithful to God, he's going to bless you in every way, and it's going to be a life like you can't even imagine. But he makes them go through 40 years of uncertainty in order to get there. That's a discipline. And so the first application is, as we think of ourselves as Christians, living our lives, we want answers for everything. We want explanations for everything. And partly we just have to accept that God doesn't always give us that. And there's a reason that he doesn't give it to us. And it's his discipline that he is applying to us. Now, the, the secondary aspect of that, when I think about being a parent, is one thing that I have not been good at as a parent is this, if this is an aspect of discipline. I have always, even when my kids are pretty little, I spend a lot of time explaining myself. This is happening to you because of this, or we're going here because of that, or, or whatever. I, I want to explain everything. I want them to understand everything. And, and I don't think you have to tell your kids nothing. God, God explained some things to us. Uh, but I can remember several years ago when, when the kids were smaller, um, my mother, who I think is pretty wise and did an okay job with her kids, uh, she pointed that out. She said, the problem you're having with your kids is you talk too much. And you have to think about that. You know, if, if you always explain everything to your children, what are you teaching them? You're teaching them they deserve an explanation. You're teaching them that they have a vote in what goes on. If everything's got a rationale, then if they come up with a better idea, why not do it their way? And so giving them some uncertainty sometimes. Just saying this is what we're going to do. Or this is what you are going to do. And you'll understand it later. That's a kind of discipline that, that maybe we need to apply as parents, if for no other reason, so that when we grow up and we are living before the Lord and he's doing the same thing to us, they can understand that. And they don't have a demand that there's always an answer for everything. And Moses says to the Israelites, remember, God gave you that. He spent 40 years in the wilderness. Remember the way that he led you, humbling you, telling you that you're not the center of the universe. You're a part of his big plan but he's not explaining everything to you. He humbled you that way and tested you to see whether you would trust him. That's one kind of discipline that the Lord has. A second kind, as we go back to Deuteronomy in chapter 8, that we see. 
Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, says, He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He says, I allowed you to suffer hunger. Uh, the, the note that I wrote about that as I was reading it is, well, somewhere else is where that note is. Um, but, but the thought that I had then as I was reading this is we believe and understand that God knows everything. Right? He knows the future. He knows the present. He knows the past. He knows whatever obstacles are coming up in front of us. And so as he led him into the wilderness, do you suppose he knew that they were going to need food to eat? And do you suppose he knew that they were going to need water as they went out into the wilderness? And so why, if God is a good and loving God, why didn't he just have that already for them so that they never even felt the lack? Why didn't he do that? Because that's what we do as parents, right? We anticipate the need and we make sure before they even get there, the need is filled. Or we feel like we're supposed to. And Moses says, remember, God lets you be hungry. Why did he let him be hungry? He didn't have to. If after they got hungry, he gave them manna, he could have gave them manna before they ever got hungry. Why does he let them get hungry? Except to teach them that they needed God and to teach them that they were not self-sufficient and that they were going to have to trust him. And that then becomes God's discipline as well. If you're going to go to something greater and better, God says, you're not going to get there on your own. When we look at the eternal reward that God promises us, isn't the same thing true? You're not going to get there on You're not going to take hold of yourself and make yourself so good and righteous and perfect that you are going to deserve to go to heaven. You're not going to get there yourself. So he's going to let you feel a lack so that you can recognize you need him and so that you can turn to him. In a different context, Paul, I think, talks about this idea, even in the New Testament, as far as how God deals with us. And if you're tempted at all by the prosperity gospel that says, if you're faithful and good, then God will not let anything bad happen to you, just look at and think about what Paul says about himself as an apostle of God, going about doing God's work in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse... Five, he says, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. He's not just saying we went through kind of a hard time in Asia. He says we were utterly afflicted, utterly burdened, beyond our strength, so much so that we despaired of life. We thought we were going to die, he says. And then he says, but this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God 
who raises the dead. And we can ask the same question there that we were just asking about the Israelites. Why couldn't God have provided manna ahead of time for them instead of letting them be hungry? Paul was led by the Spirit in all the places that he went, which tells us unequivocally that God knew where he was going. He knew what he was going to face in the places that he was going. So why didn't the Lord just spare him all of those things and, and lead him around all those obstacles or find some way? Couldn't he have done that? He's capable of doing that. And yet Paul says he didn't do that and also recognizes that there was a reason that he didn't do it. This was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So we go through scary times as Christians. We go through hard times as Christians. And our immediate attitude is God must not care. Or maybe God's not even real, because if there was a good God, he would not let these things happen to me. Well, if that's what we think about God, it tells us we're worshiping a made-up God that the Bible doesn't tell us anything about. Because the Bible tells us about a God who lets his people suffer, who lets them hurt, who lets them be hungry, who lets them be afraid, who lets them think that they are about to die just to teach them that they are relying on him. He lets us go through those kinds of things to teach us that we need God and to trust him. And so as we go through things, we have to tell ourselves, God is able to deliver me from this. And if he doesn't, then there must be something in it that is beneficial to me. Well, then, as we apply that as parents, the application is a little bit obvious. What do you get when you raise a kid and you give them everything they need before they even ask for it and everything they want before they even know that they want it? What do you wind up with? I don't even have to answer the question. There is a benefit in letting them be hungry sometimes, letting them hurt sometimes, letting them fail sometimes so they can recognize that they need to turn to someone, and that is to the Lord. A third way that God blesses them, and those two, I guess, we could call negative sorts of discipline. I'm making you go through uncertainty. I'm making you go through suffering. But then as we go to Deuteronomy chapter 8 again, he also reminds them, verse 3, he lets you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. So although he put them through uncertainty, although he allowed them to suffer, he also blessed them in that they had what they needed. When you got hungry, did he not feed you? When, he was thirsty, when you were thirsty, did he not give you water? They go out into the desert for 40 years wearing clothes that don't wear out. Shane can't keep a pair of clothes for two weeks. And for 40 years, for 40 years, their clothes don't wear out. He gives them the things that they need. Your feet didn't swell. Maybe we don't appreciate that. I know some of you appreciate what it would be like if your feet didn't swell, but... But mostly we don't appreciate your feet don't swell because any place we need to go, even if my feet hurt, I can get in the car and I can ride. Every place they went, they were going on their feet. Your feet didn't swell. Another place, their shoes didn't wear out. He gave them food, water, and clothing during that whole time that they were in the wilderness. In other words, he gave them what they needed. There's discipline here, too. Are we content 
with just what we need? Do we recognize God's blessings when he provides those things to us? Or do we see mere survival as being beneath us? If all I got is the clothes on my back. If someone says that to you today, I've got food to eat today and clothes on my back, what are they saying? They're generally saying, I am not doing very well. (laughs) But here Moses says, God blessed you, Israelites, in that he gave you what you need. And by giving us what we need and no more, what is he teaching? If we'll learn the lesson, he's teaching gratitude. In the New Testament, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, First Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, says, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is pierced through this, it is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, having food and clothing. With these we shall be content, he says. I don't need anything else. That's what contentment says. When Jesus taught us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, the prayer was not, Give me a year's supply of food or a month's supply of food or even a week's supply of food. But he says, give us this day our daily bread. Just give me what I need right now. That's what we ask for. That's what we seek. That's what we're content with. Continuing on in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25, Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will put on because your father knows that you need these things. There's that promise, and you even see that in the wilderness. God gives them what they need. He gives us what we need. And so as we think about applying that to ourselves as Christians, can we and do we content ourselves with merely having what we need? And if we're not thankful and grateful for small blessings, what makes us think that we would receive bigger ones? or that we should receive bigger ones. And there's a principle, again, in Matthew chapter 25 that Jesus teaches. Matthew 25, starting in verse 14, is the parable of the talents. I don't want to read the whole thing. But you know the story that one got five, one got two, one just got one, and the one with five went and worked it and worked on it and and improved it, and the one with two did the same thing, and the one with one just went and buried it. But as he talks about those two that take the two and five talents, and we can debate and argue about whether two and five talents is a lot or a little, Um, but here Jesus says it's a little. Verse 20 says, He who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, You delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. 
I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. What's the lesson? What's the principle that's being taught? That if you can do well with a little, then you'll get more, is, is what he seems to be saying there. I don't know of any other way to explain it. And so then you think about Israel back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, where Moses says, God lets you be hungry, but he fed you. He took you through the wilderness, but he gave you clothes to wear, and your shoes didn't wear out, and your feet didn't swell. He, he gave you everything exactly that you needed. And remember with those Israelites, as God was giving them what they needed, what were they doing? Complaining and whining and murmuring and completely dissatisfied with what God was doing. And, and here Moses is saying, the Lord is about to bless you in a huge way. He's going to give you cities that you didn't build. He's going to drive out all of your enemies before you. You're going to walk into a land and the crops are already going to be planted. All you got to do is pick it and eat it. It's a huge blessing that you're about to eat. Remember that he has provided for you all the way. I brought them out of slavery and gave them the things. that If you can't be thankful with small blessings, then are you going to be thankful with big ones? And in the example of Israel, we see they weren't thankful for the small things, and they weren't thankful for the big things either. And that's, that's human nature, unfortunately. But God teaches us to be thankful. Philippians 4, verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, with thanksgiving, is it possible that God teaches us to be thankful by giving us less instead of by giving us more? And has that ever happened to you? Have you ever lost everything or nearly everything or felt like you lost everything? And then as things start to come back, you appreciate them just a little bit more? And God says he disciplines us in that way. So as we apply that to our kids, what's the, what's the lesson? Same, same as what we talked about before, right? Give them everything? No. Let them lack, but also give them less so that they will appreciate it more. Uh, just one quick, silly illustration. There was one year. We had three years where Abby was our only child. Not only our only child, but also the only grandkid on both sides. So what do you suppose Christmas looked like <laughs> for, for that one? Uh, and there... I think she was three, the year that I'm thinking of. But we got her a lot of cool stuff. Her grandparents got her a lot of cool stuff. She was actually also, if she's only the only grandchild, she's also the only niece of everybody. You know, so there's just all this stuff. And she's opening the presents, and we're more excited than she is. And after a while, you kind of see her just sit in the middle of all of it. And it was like an overload to her. It was too, she didn't even know what to, she would have been more grateful and more happy with a couple of things. And as we gave her too much, she, she didn't really even appreciate it. It was, it was just too much. There, there's got to be something there in the way that we discipline ourselves and the way we discipline our children. God teaches us gratitude by giving us less. We can teach our children gratitude by giving themselves them less. We can teach ourselves gratitude by learning to be content with less. Running out of time. The last one I want to talk about is not in... Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, 
Actually, I had five, but I'm only going to talk about four. But if you go back a couple of chapters in Deuteronomy chapter 4, another thing that is called discipline by Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 34 says, Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror? all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, there is no other besides him. Out of heaven he lets you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he lets you see his great fire, and you heard the words out of the midst of the fire. And maybe we'll have to think about this one just for a second to to see how it's discipline. Um, Have you ever thought, I wish I could hear the voice of God? I wish the Lord would speak to me like he spoke to Israel or like he spoke to Moses or like he spoke to David or, or like he spoke to Samuel. I wish God would talk to me like that. You know what people often do when the Lord speaks in the Bible to them? <laughs> they run and hide because it's terrifying. And in fact, as Moses looks back to this event, he says, he lets you hear his voice that he might discipline you. What he's talking about is Mount Sinai when he's giving the Ten Commandments. And I don't know if we think about that with the giving of the law, but as the Lord speaks from the mountains, when you listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy, you look at it in Exodus, the Ten Commandments, everybody hears. They hear God say those things, and after God speaks those Ten Commandments, then they say to Moses, you go up and talk to him, and we'll write that right down here, because if we hear his voice anymore, we're going to die. They're terrified to hear the voice of God. And yet here Moses says, God lets you hear his voice so that he might discipline you. You Knowing the fear of the Lord is a form of discipline as well. We see that in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 6, Paul says, We are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's also known to your conscience. Let's look also real quickly at Hebrews chapter 10. Starting in verse 21, it says, Since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God 
and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, I don't know if you noticed the same irony that I noticed. But both in 2 Corinthians 5 and in Hebrews 10, the first thing it talks about is being comforted in God, being delighted in God, being assured in God, looking forward to being with God. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, you know, whether we're, we make it our aim. While we're at home in the body, we're at, away from the Lord. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. There's that love and delight. God is the source of all blessings. We saw that in Deuteronomy 2. We see that in Hebrews uh, chapter 10 as well. First, we have a great priest over the house of God. We can draw near with full assurance of faith. We have a hopeful confession that we need to hold fast without wavering. We're looking forward to that day coming. Those verses are very familiar to us. But what I notice is that we tend to read those sections of the same text separately. We read the part in Hebrews 10 about full assurance and having a great priest over the house of God one Sunday. And another Sunday, we'll read about the wrath of God. But we don't connect the two. We'll read 2 Corinthians chapter 5 about looking forward to being at home with the Lord one time. And at another time, we'll talk about knowing the terror of the Lord. And that's why we persuade men. And Paul says it all at once. The Hebrew writer says it all at once. Moses says it all at once. God is both the source of every blessing and every comfort and every hope that you ever had. He's also the most fearful being that you don't want to mess around with. Both of those things are true at the same time and held in our minds to be held in our minds at the same time. God's not angry, wrathful God in the Old Testament and loving, good, gentle, pushover God in the New Testament. He is the God of blessing, and he is the God of justice all the time in both testaments. And so while Moses tells him, remember how God gave you everything that you needed, and he guided you in the wilderness, and he led you through uncertainty even to the borders of the promised land, remember also when he lets you hear his voice, and you understood for the first time what a terror it is to be on the wrong side of God. It's something Christians have largely forgotten. We only think about all the promised blessings and we flat ignore the warnings. The terror of the Lord is a kind of discipline as well that we need to have. We both live in hope and we live in fear of the wrath of God. And that's what motivates us to keep the faith and guide us on the right way. The application to raising children should be obvious. Isn't it? <laughs> it's okay to let your kids be afraid of you sometimes. Uh, in fact, maybe they have to be afraid of you occasionally if they're going to be motivated to walk in the right ways. So dual applications, and there's, there's probably a million more just looking there at Deuteronomy chapter 8. When God talks about discipline, though, He's not just talking about punishment. There's a whole host of other things. He's training, he's equipping, he's preparing, he's teaching in all of these various ways. And those are the ways that he disciplined Israel. Those are the ways he disciplines us. And he says, I'm doing it like a father, which says his parents, that's the way we need to discipline our children. 